Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the No Name Music Cast. My name's Tim, and this is... Joy. And we open the episode with a bit of sad news this evening. We're recording this on January the 11th. And today, this evening, in fact, we got some very sad news that Jeff Beck had passed away. I saw that and thought of you, Tim. Yeah, he, um, somebody I've never seen play. I always used to say to Hannah that next time Jeff Beck comes through, I have to see Jeff Beck. And that will never happen now. I mean, Jeff Beck is one of those guitar players that every guitar hero, whether it be Brian May, Steve Vai, uh, Joe Satriani, whatever, ask him who the greatest guitar player in the world is, and they'll tell you it's Jeff Beck. Well, and he's somebody that even though I'm not like super into like all the guitar knowledge, I I don't know anybody who's never heard his name as someone who's not like, you know, a pop star, but you know him as a really good guitarist. I feel like he's a universally known name. Absolutely. And the thing is about Jeff is he he didn't play with a pick. He played with his fingers. And when it comes to sheer control of the instrument, Jeff Beck is the best. And I would probably say... If you're saying who is the best guitar player, mm-hmm. I'd probably say Jeff Beck. And I've, I've, I've said that for a long time. The problem is, is a lot of his music isn't very accessible. Um, he's He played on lots of different tracks. I mean, one example, he played on um, Bon Jovi's Blaze of Glory. That solo that sounds like bottleneck slide guitar mm-hmm. is Jeff Beck doing it with the whammy bar because he mm-hmm. was very famous that he could do that thing where you make the whammy sound like a, um, a bottleneck slide. Yeah. Um, but much of his music for most people sounds like video game music, if I'm being completely honest. And it's not terribly accessible unless you're, you know, unless you're super into that sort of jazz fusion type stuff. But, but even still such a sad loss to the guitar world. I mean, I just pulled up the Twitter before we hit record and like every musician and everything to do with music that I've ever seen is like, I can't believe this, that Jeff has gone. Well, and uh, he's somebody who toured for a very long time. I would, I mean, and everybody I've seen, heard, saw things. They said, even though, if you, even if you're not super into the music, like Tim was talking about, he supposedly puts, he put on a really good show. Absolutely. No. However, his last tour, which he just finished, he was touring with Johnny Depp playing guitar. So, I mean, mm. <laughs> I don't know if I would have necessarily wanted to see him jamming out with Johnny Depp, but there you go. I always just think of the Viper Room when I think of Johnny Depp and guitar, because the thing about the Viper Room to me is that I know there's like, you know, you know what the Viper Room is in the history of people passing away and things. But it, it cracks me up because it's like Johnny Depp bought a bar just so he had a place to play his guitar. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why, but that just makes me laugh. Like he lives a very different world than me. He's like, well, I want a place where people can come and see me play guitar. So I'm just going to buy a bar. Well, that's like Billy Joel has a um, a shop where he makes custom motorcycles <laughs> and he bankrolls this place. It's in New Jersey. He bankrolls this place. It doesn't really make any money, but he got it because he likes motorcycles and he likes hanging out with the guys. So he created this environment where he'd employ the best motorcycle techs that he could find, pay them well, and he'd go down and they'd all be building motorcycles and repairing motorcycles. And he'd just go down and just hang out, have a coffee with them, see what's come in. And that's what he wanted. Well, Adam Sandler said towards the end of his career, he started just putting movies because, you know, he's producing them with the Happy Gilmore and he had so much money. He could do whatever he wanted. He was just putting his movies in like different locations around the world. So him and all the buddies that were always in the same movies with them could just go fly and get a vacation and film a movie while they're there. I mean, there's some merit to that, I suppose. Well, I mean, you think like in the realm of music, I mean, at the level I play music at, 
you know, you, you go to different places and you get a little bit of money and it's fun and you're with the guys and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. you think you're at the, I don't know, large touring act level where you don't necessarily need the cash. If you're a Foo Fighters or if you are Billy Joel or mm-hmm. I don't know, any, any of those sort of acts, you think there's, there's some element of that. It's like, yeah, this is great. Let's let's go to let's go to Argentina. Let's go to Belgium. <laughs> when I don't, you're picking you know. your tour spots. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've never been there before. Let's try that one. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I'm not judging. I think it sounds kind of fun, and it's nice that he was able to do that. I just remember Charlie watching an interview where he said that. I was like, smart. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. Well, we we sadly say goodbye to Jeff Beck this evening. It's a terrible loss to the guitar community. If um, if you haven't heard Jeff Beck's music, I would recommend maybe the album Blow by Blow, which is an instrumental album. And Cause We Ended as Lovers is probably the best track on it, in my opinion, though. The whole thing is great. But I would say if you wanted to start with his uh, instrumental music that Jeff Beck made, that's probably where you want to start. Also, go on YouTube and check out his version of uh, the Beatles' A Day in the Life. The version from the um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame concert is probably the definitive article. All right. Well, there's Tim's marching orders, I guess. And with that, we say rest easy, Mr. Beck. Exactly. Mm. All right. Moving along, I have a taste test for us. Yay, <laughs> taste test. So um, I actually already had a sip of it, but I did not give a thorough analysis. And I have a full glass now. Um, the other day I got this and I sent Tim a message of me trying Rabina, right? That's the name of it. Yeah, Ribena. So it, for those who don't know, it's black currant, which is not a common flavor in America because up until a few years ago, the black currant plant was banned because it like destroys pine trees. And so the pine industry said no black currant. I had heard it described as kind of like a raspberry or maybe even a grape, something along those lines. So I'm going to give it a thorough test and tell Tim, you've had this before. Yes. Yeah. I, oh, I've had Ribena my entire life. Now, one thing I'd just like to point out before you taste mm. it in the United States, if you have a drink like that, it typically comes as a powder and then you mix that powder with water. In England, you have what we call a cordial where it is a bottle, you know, like a one liter bottle or two liter bottle or something. And it is a very thick concentrate. And then you have to dilute that concentrate, normally like one part concentrate to three parts water or something along those kind of lines. So I went, when Joy got it, I, I had to tell her how to do it before she read the label. This is true. And it did have very nice instructions, but they were in metrics. And I'm about to bring the bottle over here, but I forgot it. That's anyway, you can just Google it. If you Google black current drink, it'll come up if you don't know how to spell it. So here we go. Cheers, Tim. Cheers to you. It. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to make noise in anyone's ear because nobody wants to hear that. But it. Um, it doesn't taste like much of anything to me. Like it just. It's. It's very. It's very like. Like the flavor's not bright. It's kind of a dull down, maybe partially because it is a concentrate. I don't know, but it does remind me a little bit of grape, maybe grapes and raspberry. And I imagine this could go well in alcohol if you mixed it. That's probably a common thing. It's like, you know, juices like cranberry go well with vodka or something. Yeah, I, I don't know whether Ribena is used as a mixer, but maybe it is. Yeah, I would probably describe it as, yeah, like berry. It's like a berry flavor. And a grape together, I suppose. Yes. It's like the grape is very 
it's not a strong flavor at all, but it's there mixed with what I would associate as like maybe a a raspberry. Not cranberry though. I don't get cranberry vibes. No, it's probably more, more raspberry. It's not bad. It's, you know what it probably is? I'm so used to all the American drinks that, um, juices that have so much sugar in them. (laughs) So this is like, got like no flavor whatsoever. Yeah, because I, I think there's a thing in England there where you can't have so much sugar in drinks or something. So maybe, maybe it's not as it isn't the Ribena from my youth. I mean, there is a flavor there. It might just be that my palate doesn't know how to understand it. Maybe I don't know. It could Were be. you surprised that you couldn't get this here, Tim, when you moved? No, because the last time I had Ribena, I was probably about twelve years old. Fair. I don't really drink much juice either, <laughs> but. Um, I just knew black currant was um, bland. So when I was walking through the Kroger one day, I saw this sitting on the international shelf, which one day we should take a picture and show everybody what the American international <laughs> shelf looks like. It's like the Kinds 57 beans. Yeah, <laughs> it's, di- it, yeah it's digestive biscuits, beans, Ribena, arrows. <laughs> um I, I, there's a few there's some matzo ball things for like Jewish people. <laughs> yeah, for, for in, certainly in terms of UK stuff, I, I think next time I'm in there, I will have to take a photograph and we can, we can dissect the, uh, <laughs> That'd the be bounty. <laughs> to be fair, I've seen pictures of the American section at um, UK grocery stores, and it's just as humorous. So it goes both ways. Um, but yeah, I don't really have a... I'll drink it, I guess. I bought it. It's in my fridge now, but I don't know what I think of it. I mean, one thing about Ribena, it has legendary staining properties because you would you would give Ribena to a child and then mm. it invariably end up wearing most of it. And then you, they just have like this pinky red stain on whatever they're wearing. That's like grape juice in America. It's always grapes because they purple. You, you know. Yeah. If you like grapes, if you like raspberry you'd probably like it and it's probably got a lot less sugar than whatever we're giving our kids (laughs) but anyway all right so i have one more thing and this is just mostly annoyed (laughs) i'm starting to hate this game so my uh we were laughing because when we before we started the podcast i kept yawning and that made me think um why was i yawning it was because i worked all day tim your word is work work Okay, so the, oh yeah. this is a Mick Jagger solo song called Let's Work. How does the song go, Tim? Let's work. It doesn't go anything like that. It's a song called Let's Work. I think uh, she works hard for the money. That, that's, that's, a, that, that's a classic one or... Or maybe something by men at work, like Down Under, for example. I thought that one, too. I'm sure there's... Well, um, Johnny used to work on the docks. I hate that song, but that's the first one that comes we're to mind. We're halfway there, but we're still living on a prayer. Uh, works. And then there's that one Rihanna song that Tim's not going to know, but it just goes, work, 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 work. <laughs> All right. That was my word. And with that, we can go ahead and get into the topic, unless you have anything else, Tim. 
Nope, that's what I have straight over to you, Joy, with this week's topic. All right. So I was very excited about this topic because it's just got some interesting things. I think it'll be a fun one for me and Tim to discuss. So we, I did that little story about Dolly Parton's song being about oysters and how random that was to me. So I just found songs with bizarre backgrounds on what they mean. Songs you hear every day, but you think they mean one thing, the artists think they mean another, just like where they came from, how they wrote them, that kind of stuff. Hmm. So... Um, and I just have probably like 15, 20 me and Tim are going to pull from. We'll talk about. Um, and these are mostly like big name songs because that's what people are talking about. So we will start with Led Zeppelin's All My Love. Are you familiar with this song, Tim? I, I am indeed very much so. I think I think actually that song has a Mellotron in it. Well, sadly, the um, story behind it is quite sad. I'm going to start it out with the sad one. It's actually a song with a devastating backstory. The ballad was written about singer Robert Plant's son, who died suddenly uh, at the age of five from a stomach virus. Did you know that, Tim? No, I didn't. I didn't know that. He said that um, I think it was just paying tribute to the joy that was Carrick gave us as a family and in a crazy, crazy way still does. Plant later said in the song in an interview, his mother, Maureen, and I often um, the memory changes, the contrast, the focus as time goes on. And it's a long time ago. We lost him 40 years. Just two years later, Plant and then wife Maureen gave birth to another son, Logan, who the singer says is so similar to his late child that the images are blurred. Hmm. So I'm sorry to start it out sad, but I thought that was a pretty meaning to the song. Yeah, that, that's terribly sad to lose a child at such such a young age. Um, yeah, I, I didn't know that that was the uh, that was what the, what the song was about or the inspiration for the song. Well, you know what it made me feel bad about when you hear things like "All My Love" and you know it literally says "All My Love" over and over and over again, right in the song. I automatically assume it's probably about like a a couple, a partner. You know what I mean? There are more ways to love somebody than like being in a relationship with like that. And I'm like, it makes me think that when I hear songs like that, I automatically assume it's some type of romantic thing. And I'm like, why do I assume that? I don't know. I think that's because traditionally, a lot of contemporary music songs are love love songs on some level. Yeah. I mean, that's true. You're probably right. And it's common for art to be related to romantic relationships, things like that. But I just thought that was a sweet story. So we're going to go a different route with this next one. It's it's kind of a sweet story, but I didn't know that this is this. This is a weird song for it to be what it's about. But it's still kind of a sweet story. So it's Bonnie Ray. I can't make love to you, which sounds like in the title. She's telling you (laughs) what she needs. Hey, but basically there was a guy living under a bridge somewhere close to downtown Nashville and his wife came to pick him up under the bridge and took him down to the courthouse to get a divorce. And she knew this story somehow knew this person said we hugged, we cried. They talked about the divorce. Da, 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 da. And he said, you know, you just can't make a woman love you when she was telling this man that lived under a bridge told her that. And so that's where the song came from. Oh, wow. But I mean, I'm like, how did she find this person? She never says where this person came from, but some guy who was living under a bridge. Hmm. I mean, maybe it's someone that she knew. Maybe. I mean, cause she's, 
But anyway, it's very much a philanthropist. I can't even mm-hmm. say the word philanthropist. So maybe she's working with homeless people. Maybe maybe she's supporting people who live under bridges. I don't know. Maybe she knows people who do. Um, she, she strikes me as somebody who would have friends and acquaintances across a big spectrum. She wouldn't be one of these people who's a very much an elite type of person. So the yeah. fact that she either knows somebody who lives under a bridge or supports somebody that lives under a bridge, that doesn't That's surprise true. me. I mean, that's fair. I didn't think about it like that. I was just kind of random when I first read it. Um, but it I, I mean, I, now the song takes a different meaning again. Um, we just assumed we knew what it was about. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so, yeah, that was a cool one. Now, this is a story I have heard before, and I feel like Tim has probably heard it before. But for the listeners, for people who maybe don't look into this stuff as much as we do, the song is the Beatles. Let it be. Have you heard about the story behind that, Tim? Um, I don't think I do. Okay. So basically it's Paul McCartney, right? Um, so he said that was inspired by a dream about his mother. And I heard him talk a little bit about this on one of the carpool karaoke's. Um, McCartney claimed he was struggling at the time personally. Um, he was into drugs and alcohol. One night he came home from a long night and fell asleep. When he woke up, he realized he dreamed of his he had dreamed of his mother who had died when he was 14. My mom appeared, there's her face, completely clear, particularly with her eyes, and she said to me, very assuringly, let it be. Yeah, because because the opening line is when I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom. Let it be. Ah, they are. See. Yeah, and he said that there was. Oh, I can't remember. There's like a church. So I have to go back. And, Tim might know, but this is a very vague thing to say. I don't know exactly where they were driving around on that carpool karaoke, but he said something about there's a big church that they drove past, and that kind of helped solidify the song um it was like a big cathedral probably somewhere where they were known and they went by a graveyard and he was talking about that kind of inspired the mother mary comment that's why it's mother mary and not his mother saying let it be on carpool karaoke he talks about that and i thought that was pretty interesting and then he also talks about um a few other songs that they would that were have weird backgrounds so if you've never seen it watch it anyway. yeah i think that the, the the carpool karaoke in question, I think, is shot in Liverpool, if I remember. And then there's a setup bit later where they play in a pub, and then people are like, "Oh no, it's Paul McCartney! Who would have thought it?" <laughs> pub, and Paul yeah. McCartney just happens to reach over the bar and pour the beer. And... Yeah, as, as as if there isn't like loads of high end uh, music equipment all all set up in the pub and things, and, <laughs> and a camera crew to record. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. I mean, though, it would be cool though if. At- if you just happen to walk by, though, that would be a cool concept. But I mean, the other thing is they probably had to like approve who got in. There was probably some type of process. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it would have been a close set. I mean, mm-hmm. they're not going to let anyone wander in in that pub. And if I remember correctly, when I watched it, all the windows were blacked out anyway. Mm-hmm. They had like curtains over them. And, you know, the car, the car that they are driving is being towed. Yeah. As, as, as we know, they, none of those carpool karaoke they've ever driven. It's always being towed on a trailer. And there's a bit in that carpool karaoke where, where Paul goes into the um, the barber showing photographs, which mm-hmm. is now a lady's hairdresser. I mean, that, that bit may have not been set up, but the whole thing is like contrived well, and then they go back to the house he grew up in um at one point the lady somebody else owns it now and i'm like well she had to approve this before they just showed up yeah because if you if you, i mean i've done tv stuff and if you do tv you have to sign a release 
So you mean to tell me when I was in high school and I was watching my sweet 16 and they were giving out their invitations, Tim, they weren't actually surprising their friends. <laughs> How did no. they, my favorite part is when you show this. So they would give like, they would walk in, right. And give their friend, here's your invitation to my super sweet 16. But the camera angle is like sometimes like behind the person they're giving the invitation to like pointing towards the person that, so it's like a point of view shot. I'm like, so they didn't notice those cameras <laughs> standing behind them <laughs> before you gave them this. <laughs> it's yeah. I mean, there's paperwork involved. There's cameras. I mean, permits have to be approved. <laughs> I mean, as we've said before, all reality TV is contrived. It's it's known it's known in the business as scripted reality shows because it either has a hard script or they say, okay, Bob, you're gonna argue mm-hmm. with Jane about the cooker and go. And it's just oh it's it's a genre of TV that that makes my skin crawl. I can't watch it for more than two minutes. But I will say, if you've never seen the carpool karaoke with Paul McCartney, it is worth watching. He goes a lot into all this stuff. And I mean, it's Paul McCartney. We're not going to, sadly, he is getting older. So I'm going to take every chance to see him, even if he's in a car with James Corden, which is Tim's favorite person, everybody. I just I just don't get James Corden. He's just... Well, he went back to... Didn't he go back to the UK now? Isn't he back over there? I thought... I, I think so. I don't think the UK wants him. I think he's in a no-man's land. <laughs> Should, maybe maybe he's going to have to live in Iceland, like halfway between the two or something. I don't know. He, For those who don't know, he... Um, he was doing a TV... One of the late-night shows. I don't even know which one it was. And he... A lot of people came forward saying he's very mean as a person. He's not nice to work with. He couldn't even name like the cameraman's name. And so he got a really bad rep in America. And then he said, well, I'm going to sell my house. And he posted a thing, sell his house saying he's going back to the UK. And all the people from the UK were responding going, no, please don't. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what. That's the story there. Like they couldn't Google that, Tim. Like I just needed to explain. <laughs> <laughs> and also there was another thing recently where he his writers must hate him too, because on the, on his late night show, he did a comedy bit at the beginning of his show, like in the monologue or however they do it mm-hmm. in his show. And he basically did an entire Ricky Gervais comedy piece now i'm not mm. a big fan of ricky gervais at all i don't i find him a little annoying and abrasive but you know if you like ricky gervais that's fine yeah but but he did ricky gervais did a netflix comedy special mm-hmm. and you know and if you're into the ricky gervais world this was incredibly popular and he does this whole bit i can't remember what it's about but he does this whole bit as part of this comedy special very iconic ricky gervais comedy piece mm-hmm. and then his writers on james corden got him to tell that joke basically word for word. <laughs> so it's like mm-hmm. even his writers hate him by plagiarizing Ricky Gervais. So people are going to go, ah, look at him ripping off Ricky Gervais. And they're some of the best writers in the world. So they could have wrote a real joke if they wanted to. Sure. <laughs> that's, oh, that's bad. So anyway, not that this is a James Gordon <laughs> bashing podcast. All right. Back to the music. So the next one is, and this is a funny song that I thought, I thought I knew what it was about, but maybe I didn't. It is Aerosmith's Dude Looks Like a Lady. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't really given this one a great deal of thought. I took it at face value, to be honest, but I don't know. So Aerosmith were working on a music video with songwriter Desmond Child, who who was brought in to help them write. 
The band wasn't particularly welcoming to outside writers, except for Steven Tyler. Um, Tyler showed Child a song he was calling called Cruising for the Ladies. Dude looks like a lady cruising for the ladies. And Child told him he wasn't a fan of the title. So Tyler explained that the original title was Dude Looks Like a Lady and that it came from an experience that he had been had while sitting at a bar. Singer looked over to what he thought was a girl with large blonde hair, only to discover it was actually Vince Neal from Motley Crue. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the band started chanting that Dude Looks Like a Lady to mock him and thus a song was born. And after Child told him he didn't like the title, he changed it back. <laughs> Well, they, yeah, it, it will be said that a lot of the bands of that era, the hair metal era, if you will, had the most beautiful hair of anyone. Well, and Vince had very large blonde hair. So I see if you were standing behind him, how you might think. That. <laughs> yeah, because you, you think like the, me- the members of Whitesnake, the members of mm-hmm. Def Leppard back in the day there. Yeah, there was a lot of hairspray, a lot of product. Yeah. Uh, beautiful long locks of curly blonde hair often. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it was a it was a great time to to be a guy and have great hair. Oh, Charlie would have ate that up. My husband, because Tim could tell you for a while, Charlie had very long hair. He just chopped it all off. If he had any excuse to wear his hair like that, oh, he'd be done. He'd, that, that would be him all the time. Yeah, I had I had long hair. It was shoulder length hair, and it, when it gets longer, it gets curly, which is exciting. Oh. I don't know. I, I had it sort of eighteen, nineteen. Had it for a little while, and then uh, <laughs> it, it was it was time for the long hair to say goodbye. Well, you know, it comes and goes. I'm sure one day Charlie's going to tell me he wants to regrow it out. For now, he's decided he wanted to go back to looking um, like a member of society. And when he decides he wants to be Jack Black again, you'll know. <laughs> yeah, I haven't had long hair since I was 19. Maybe at some point I'll grow it back out long again. <laughs> the, pro- the problem is, is it's, it's graying. So it's going to be that sort of aging rock star, not completely gray, not completely the same color type of hair. So unless you dye it, it's not going to look super Just flattering. dye it white and then you and um, Brian make a match. There Just you go. White. Yeah, but it doesn't. It doesn't do the Brian May thing. It doesn't go mm. boof on. It just sort of falls down here, and it has a bit of a curl to it. Well, I mean, about it's about as close as you're going to get, Tim. So you about to just go for it. That's my yeah. advice. I mean, I'm lucky where I work. If I wanted to grow my hair out long, no one would care. No one would care because it's just hair, and hair doesn't mean that Tim can't fix your computer. There we are. See. I don't know why that started to rhyme. <laughs> anyway, all right, back to another band with big hair. The next song is Van Halen's Jump. I just wanted to say that extreme. So, once again, another band song that you probably have not thought too much into and just thought about a guy like jumping on stage or something, right? So yeah, D- Diamond mind. Dave might as well jump. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's. Yeah, D- 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 David Lee Roth is the um, the king of the superficial lyric. He's normally singing about a stripper or something, but it's never it's never anything too deep. Well, <laughs> I found the one. So anyway, um, those lyrics were written by singer David Lee Roth, who wrote the song's hook after hearing guitarist um, Eddie Van Halen's iconic synth line. Roth immediately thought of a story he had seen on the news. So for some reason, hearing him play the guitar made him think of this about a man who was threatened to jump off a tower and commit suicide. Roth recalled thinking there would have been at least one person in the crowd around the jumper telling him, go ahead and jump. 
And that's how he wrote the song. Yeah, that's that's, that's a lot darker than, than the <laughs> right. song suggests because it's in a major key. And you see the video and Diamond Dave is doing flip, flip flat jumps and stuff. And he's jumping mm -hmm. off the drum riser and Eddie's having a great time with a big smile on his face. And he's playing his Oberheim synthesizer. And yeah, is that's, 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 that subject matter is a lot darker than I thought it was going to be. hundred ten percent. I would have never thought that that's where that came from because the song gives zero you know, there's a lot of songs, though, that sound upbeat. And if you really look at the lyrics, you're like, OK, no, this isn't that girl. You know, it's not a positive message. But this one sounds upbeat. And if you look at the music, it still seems positive. There's nothing in it to indicate. Go ahead and jump. Jump was about somebody trying to commit suicide. No, absolutely. As I said, Di Diamond Dave is is writes party lyrics, yeah. typically. And as I said, he does write a song like Panama is about a stripper. And that, you know, and that yeah. fits the narrative of the party Dave. That's that's what he does, and and that's like the difference between Van Halen and Van Hagar is Van Halen is the party, and Van Hagar is the more serious subjects. I mean, yeah, that I can see that. That makes sense. It kind of creeps the dynamic, interesting. But yeah, that one of all of them so far, Tim, that's been the most surprising. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so this song does kind of say what it's about, but this goes into more detail. So you know, and I think of this person as a one-hit wonder. Maybe in the UK they were. I have been told I'm wrong about. 20,000 times on this podcast so far when I say those words, but it's fastball the way. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's an act which I think had other hits, but I, hmm. I couldn't tell you any. Okay. That at least makes me feel better. Cause I'm waiting for Tim to go, what do you mean? They had da 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 da. And I'm like, I've never heard any of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that happens a lot on this podcast. All right. So, you know, the songs talked about a couple walking. Mm -hmm. So, the way might sound like an upbeat pop song, like we were just saying, but it's actually written about a mysterious disappearance. The song was about an elderly Texas couple who disappeared from their home and the investigation that followed. The couple reportedly had medical issues that often made them confused, and they ended up 500 miles from home without their family knowing. Um, and then the couple's remains were found at the bottom of the cliff in Arkansas just a few weeks after they went missing. Um he says, I really enjoy seeing this song, but I never forget that without that one song, Fastball would have been one of those bands I was just in for a few years, but because of it became success and fame, but I am still kind of sad about what the topic is. Hmm, that is sad. I mean, I like the idea of them having a massive adventure 500 miles from home, but being found dead is not nice. I mm -hmm. mean, like my granddad, in, sort of towards the end of his life, he, he, he used to have a bus pass and whether you could go on the trains in London, the buses yeah. and the tubes. And he'd wake up in the morning. He always dressed very, very fancily. He always used to wear a shirt and tie and a jacket. And then he'd just get on a bus or a tube or a train and go as far as he could on his free bus pass. And I asked him why he did it. He said, oh, it's something to do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's fair. I can't blame him. He probably saw some. If he was he a people watcher, do you think? He oh was yeah, he loved. People? He absolutely loved all that. And then, but the problem is, towards the very end of his life, when he he started to get a lot older and, a little, and had some health problems, actually get a bit confused mm -hmm. himself. He sometimes didn't judge the times right, and he'd wake up at three a.m. and then he'd be walking around and wondering why the heck why the uh, the barber wasn't open and why he couldn't get breakfast in the cafe. And we're like, Granddad, it's three a.m. and he's like, Oh, yeah, okay. okay. I mean, that yeah. makes sense. Well, I mean. 
I, I have a feeling one day maybe I'll end up being um, a little <laughs> a little slow on the uptake. So I'm not going to judge. It sounds like he was living a good life. He he lived a fabulous life. And he, um, again, you know, when he was in his 80s, he <laughs> used to travel to Perth, Australia routinely. He used to do that two or three times a year. Heck of a and, and he'd travel by himself. <laughs> and we, we like everyone say to him, you know, you know, that's like 23 hours on an airplane. Is that, you mm. know, you, you, you're older. Is that, he says, well, he says, you know, I can sit at home all day. He said, what's the difference? I mean, he makes a valid point. He is technically <laughs> just sitting on the plane. <laughs> I mean, that's true. Um, my grandma, whenever she was. So to be fair, I was only around one grandparent. The rest of my grandparents sadly passed away when I was younger. My grandmother was the only one that I was allowed. And she had, um, she would just do this thing. It's very funny. So she had kind of disassociated. I will say she was very towards the end. She had kind of checked out for lack of a better way of saying it. And it's probably because she's just bored of us. I don't know, but she would do this thing where she would, um, she was obsessed with like who knew who still to this day, even though she'd be 80 and you'd be trying to have a conversation. Well, she never made it to 80. She'd be in her seventies. You'd be trying to have a conversation with her and she would not care about anything else, but you would name someone and she would go through like the lineage to tell you, Oh, that's such and such as cousin. And then there, her brother, Susan, <laughs> <laughs> and like we go through the lineage on how they all like these people related to this person that had nothing to do with the story. And up until the day she passed away, she still did that. I don't know why. That was just her thing. Maybe she was just fascinated with family trees and relationship trees and all that sort of stuff. You asked my mom. She was just nosy. <laughs> oh, I mean, there is that too. <laughs> no, I mean, serious. Cause she would actually, do you know what a party line is, Tim? Oh, yeah, absolutely. She would pick up the party line and listen to what was going on with the neighbors. <laughs> we used to, when we, when we lived in Hounslow, bingo card, um, <laughs> when we lived on the Staines Road, we used to live above a TV shop there. It used to be called Templeton TV. It's not there anymore, but that's where we used to live. And it, it was the flat above the shop. We lived on one side and another couple, well, a couple lived on the other side. And that mm -hmm. was a party line. You had to wait for them to finish before you could use the phone. And I remember picking up and you'd hear a conversation and you'd have to put it down and wait. Mm -hmm. Well, my grandmother did not put it down and wait. She put it down and find out what was happening next door. <laughs> <laughs> or she didn't keep it up to find out what was happening. Uh, and that's just the way she was. But it was just interesting that that was like the one little thing to the end that she still was very keen on. Well, there we go. Tim's will be uh, Brian May's uh, guitar preferences. <laughs> when he's 80. <laughs> I mean, the one thing he's still talking about. All right. So the song. So this one was kind of cool. Had a different. Um, it's not really anything sad or anything. I just thought it was kind of interesting. So it's Ray Charles. What I say from 1959. Um, so because they said few songs demonstrate that he's a lyrical genius. And here's why. Unlike many other artists we've talked about, Charles didn't have time to like dig deep for inspiration or know stories about people jumping. He literally ran out of material during his second set of a marathon dance show in a small town near Pittsburgh. So he created the song. Yeah, I, I could see that because you know, you're playing away and you're like jamming on a great riff. And then often you, you get that with great vocalists, especially if if a song has gone on and it's and it's like if you're a band that jams a bit and mm -hmm. it, it's moving around and it's changing. And then like the vocalist goes, yeah, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Tell me what I say. And I can see how that mm -hmm. would, would appear. 
Well, especially with him as a person, he was kind of very eccentric and all the places, and, you know, like to play around with his instrument and knew his instrument really well, but basically said the people went crazy. So let me back up. As Charles at the piano, he told his band to follow and instructed the backup vocalists, the Rollette and Rollettes, whatever their name is, to repeat after him. So they just repeated each thing back to him. He said the crowd went crazy. He told Rolling Stone and that they loved it this much. Um, the song, however, did drum it a fair share of controversy, not only for its uh, overtones, because it was um, very, um, what does it say what it is? Very sexual overtones for all my mm. PG people out there. But it is also used gospel style singing. So those things together, people in the church weren't too keen on this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> isn't, so, isn't, it, isn't it funny how that song was sort of has controversy? You, you, you compare the innocence of that song compared to things that come out now. <laughs> Goodness know. me. And the, I mean, there's been everybody under the sun has done that whole justification of the song that maybe has overtones or, or in today's age is very blunt with like a gospel kind of sound, Tim. That is just like something that's happened a thousand times over, but it's almost like he was the first one to do that. Yeah. And as I said, back 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 then, that was the most controversial thing that, that ever happened. I mean, there was probably outrage and things. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense when you think about it that, like, somebody had to start that. But it is a cool, I mean, even Madonna did it, you know, like a prayer. Come on, guys. <laughs> Sure, but but like a prayer is I love that song. That is I such do. a good song. <laughs> I'm just saying it's been done a lot now, and we think of it as like common. Like I could probably name three songs that had done that, but yeah, apparently it was very controversial. But to be put on the spot, to be playing, to run out of music, to have the wear for ball, to just keep playing, to tell your backup singers to follow you. Basically, he said he went with what he learned in the church where, you know, you do kind of like a choir type thing and people back you up and people make noises, you know, big kind of, uh, I guess, Presbyterian. I think that's the name type churches where they do a lot of that kind of singing. He said he just pulled from that from when he was a kid and that's how he came up with it. I it, it just takes something in you to have all that and have that presence of mind to pull from that in that stage when he's probably just like, I have nothing to play. Yeah. I mean, you, you draw from your experiences, you draw from sort of music that you've heard and played in the past, but you know, it's just a, it's just a thing. You just, you're playing mm-hmm. and it just happens. And then, but see, here's what would happen to me, Tim. I would get done and be like, the crowd loved that. I have no idea what I played. <laughs> do you know what i mean like it's the fact that he was able to remember it and record it later yeah well like, yeah that's the, that's the genius of ray charles <laughs> of course if it was a, mar- a dance marathon somebody was probably recording i didn't think about that P- possibly but i mean you know way back then not everything was recorded you you go and mm-hmm. see any concert now especially ones that have video screens they would have recorded all the video from that concert and i'd imagine even if even even bands at every level now probably record every single gig they play off the board because it's so easy to do. You plug a uh, flash drive in the mixing desk and there you go. You've got all the stems from all the channels. Yeah. But you think back then to record something was was such a an event. You'd have to have a tape recorder and it have to be a multi-track and it would have to be this. And sometimes like these albums like Frampton Comes Alive, they have a whole mobile recording studio they'd have to bring along to record it. And it was a special event. I mean, you make a good point. That's true. I'm just saying that I would do that and then I would get to the end and have no clue what I did. 
it would just be gone. The song would be gone forever. It'd be a one-time thing because that would be the part that would go missing is remembering what I did. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I feel like that's what would happen to me. So what I'm saying, I'm complimenting him in the sense that he was able to do that. Well, there we are. They, Ray, Ray, Ray Charles, uh, he's, he could do no wrong. And everybody knows the finest thing he ever did was his work on We Are The World. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> That's true. All right. So here's one that's random. And I saw two different. So there's two different accounts of this song. One from the the singer and one from the girlfriend. So this is Bob Marley's uh, I Shot the Sheriff. Shot the Sheriff. What okay. are you going to say? So the girlfriend and him have two different accounts. So his girlfriend says that shot the sheriff isn't really about a cop, which they both agree on that. According to his girlfriend, the song was inspired by a number of fights she would have with him over birth control. The sheriff in the song is actually the doctor who prescribed her the birth control. But then he says the song, the sheriff is just wickedness that he needs to fight. Both those stories sound like to me, two people who um, (laughs) maybe were are partaking a little too much. Yeah, I would imagine they were both in a heightened, relaxed state. <laughs> it's just a theory. I mean, we are we're judging, but it, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I've I've often wondered about this song. What the actual subject matter was, because I never I never thought it was literal. I assumed it no. was a a metaphor for something. And I know that um, Eric Clapton famously covered it. Though, of course, yeah. we we celebrate the the music of that and not necessarily the person. Yes. And that, I mean, I don't know what I ever thought it was about. I just assumed that the sheriff was a metaphor for bad things, kind of like he's saying wickedness. But the line that's confusing, if either of those things are true, is I shot the sheriff, but I did not shoot the deputy. What? Well, that would say is he, he, he removed the wickedness from his life, but maybe there was still some there. I mean, I'll take it. <laughs> Possibly. I don't know. I'm, I could be just making that up. I mean, maybe. I don't know. We can't really call him up to have a conversation about it, sadly. But No, yeah. we, 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 we lost Mr. Marley, so we will never know. I mean, to be fair, I don't really feel like you have to know. I think that some songs are just, just what they are. And it's exactly. okay. But that's also like what they taught me when I was going to school for a theater. They said, don't spend too much time when you're like trying to come up with how you're going to portray a character or something of that nature in what you think the original person who wrote it wanted. Spend more time in what you feel like you could embody. So it's kind of the same thing. Exactly. Okay. So another one. Let's pick another song. I got a whole slew of them here. Do, 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 do. I don't know why I started singing you guys' ears <laughs> like you needed my my whole music wall. <laughs> I should just have Tim do the whole. All right. So we're going to go with this one. So this is Leon Cohen's Chelsea Hotel number two. Do you know that song, Tim? I'm familiar with the work of Leonard Cohen, but not necessarily that song. I don't know that I know this song either, but the story is just kind of funny. Um, and I'm going to pull up the lyrics because I'm curious now that I know what the story is about. The story is about um, Janis Joplin. Okay. And um, she may have been helping him with something, Tim. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now I want to know what the song is. Uh, nope. Would have never got that from <laughs> uh, storyline, but yeah, that's literally all he said. 
Um, he just says that he had a fling with her one day and he wrote the song about her and they never really seen each other again. There, there we go. Because <laughs> of the, the lyrics, I, if you guys are listening, just Google Chelsea Hotel number two, um, Leonard Cohen. And I'm guessing you would have never got that from this either. Well, there so we anyway. go. He, he he thanks her for that stolen afternoon, but it's, uh, <laughs> it was, it's not yours, love. You're going to have to give it back. <laughs> I love the way you said that, Tim. I wonder if she, you know what would be interesting about that, Tim? What if you never knew the song was about you and then you hear that one day? Not that she probably would have just because she passed away so young, but in general, when you find out things about that and you're like, First of all, I wish you were on TV telling people that. Second of all, didn't know the song was about me. Yeah, there was um, back a million years ago when I was at Lampton School, one of my early mentors in the world of music was my uh, uh, physics teacher, Mr. Jeff Taylor. Now, he was a guitar player and his lunchtime concert when I was about 12 12 years old was probably my inspiration for playing in a band, if I'm being honest. And later mm-hmm. on, he mentored us with our band Utopia and stuff like that. Now, yeah. He had a band called Driven to Drink, and he had a song called Tinnies, and Tinnies being tins of beer. Yeah. And the whole song told the story of somebody who l- ruined their life by drinking beer. Mm. And he said he was very pleased that he wrote this song and all the lyrics and then he got the singer of his band of Driven to Drink to sing that song when, in fact, that song was about that guy he didn't oh, realize. That's kind of, okay, that is the king of passive aggressive if I've <laughs> ever heard it. Ooh, that, mm, man. And I think that I've done some many things in my day. That, that's cold. And With bearing in mind, he told, he told us this as kids. We were like 14 and 15 <laughs> and he was telling us the story. Like, do you remember what the lyrics were like? Were they mean? Yeah, he's, um, we used to actually do it in our band, Utopia. We used to cover mm-hmm. it in our band. We we covered his song. Mm-hmm. Um, who do, do you know? Do you know who this man is? He's living his life ruined by tinnies or something. Good and, um, Lord. His liver's dead and he's got the blues now. I... I've got, I mean, I've got it in my archive from both Driven to Drink doing it and Utopia doing it, but mm-hmm. I'd, have to, I'd have to listen hard to the lyrics. But effectively, he's saying, um, it's, it wasn't it? the chorus goes, this man could party, this man could sing, but this man was succumbed to the demon drink. I think that's, I think that's how oh. the chorus went. Hey, all right. Well, we're going to go to something else <laughs> because that's deep. All right. So, but it would be, but I'm just saying like from a perspective of you, you knew this person, let's say if it's an, even if it's an ex-lover that gets famous or just somebody you met at a party who gets famous or just a friend. And then they write a song and you're like, Oh, I like the song. And then you find out like months later, it's about you. You'd be like, you'd have a, you'd have a weird feeling about that. I think so. I think you would if you actually found that out. Yeah, you'd be like, it's like they're like on national television telling everyone. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so this song is Blue Suede Shoes, which was actually written by um, Carl Perkins. I know there's, you know, Elvis's mm-hmm. version, but anyway. So Carl Perkins originally wrote and recorded the classic. Rumor has it that the songs, the concept came from Johnny Cash. I'm going to say Johnny Depp because it's him earlier, <laughs> who overheard from his friend from the Air Force say, don't step on my blue suede shoes in reference to the black shoes he wore off base. Cass says he later handed the concept over to Perkins, who was in search of his first hit record. 
There we are. I mean, it's it's a song that is probably mostly attributed to Elvis. And I think if you ask the person on the street who did Blue Suede Shoes, they'd probably tell you Elvis. But no, I do know that it is most definitely Carl Perkins. He was the writer and originator of that song. I remember the first time I went to Nashville, which was many years ago, or probably almost 20 years ago at this point. And we was in Nashville and we went past a shop and it was sort of a touristy shop, but they sold some clothes and shoes like that. And it was a huge regret I had when I got home. I said to Hannah, I said, I should have gone in and bought a pair of blue suede shoes. <laughs> so, but there is some controversy, Tim. Carl Perkins says that that is not where it comes from. Oh. <laughs> so that's Johnny Kent. So in, however, in a later documentary in 1996, he changed his story. It's called Go Cat Go, The Life and Time of Carl Perkins. Um, the songwriter says a different story, even though it contradicts his first story. He said he hadn't put much stock in Cash's idea. He says the idea came into fruitation during a live pers- performance where he heard a young man tell his date, don't step on my suites. And hmm. both of them were him saying it. So maybe he doesn't know either. <laughs> well, maybe, you know, the, the sands of time pass. And you just change your story. I, I I don't know. You know, there's this whole thing about if you tell a lie long enough, it sort of becomes truth, truth in your brain. Mm-hmm. Well, no, that's actually something they say. And um, you can bleed the lines between like, so that's one thing they talk about with like, in when you're going to like testimony for a court case, it's really important to not tell the person like feed into their because they're already in a traumatic state and you can literally bleed the lines of what really happened. It happens a lot with kids, too. That's why kids don't make reliable witnesses at all in a court case. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. So, I mean, maybe also he could have been. I don't know how old he would have been in 1996, but he was probably pretty old. Yeah. And I mean, you know, old, old folks, some, sometimes the memories of their early days are not the same as what they were back then. So. Maybe he just told the story incorrectly. Or maybe it was clout at the beginning and he just wanted a name drop, Johnny Cash. I mean, it could be. I mean, there is that. Certainly at the beginning or middle of your career when you're trying to get get out there, just to drop the old Johnny Cash name. I mean, that, that probably did you stood you in good stead. I just thought of that as you were saying that. I was like, maybe he was doing what all those, you know, what Tim talks about being the fourth member of (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fourth. You know what I mean? (laughs) I guess you'd be the fifth. But anyway. All right. So let's pick another song. So this is a song that I'm going to pick just strictly because me and Tim did a version of it. It's Radiohead's Creep. So, which is on our YouTube channel, if you've never heard it. Creep was performed um, perhaps, you know, one of the most, biggest songs from Radiohead. I don't know. And I barely know half of their other music. I'm not a big Radiohead fan, but um, the debut is apparently written on the toilets <laughs> of a student's guild nightclub, the Lemon Grove in Exeter. E-X- Exeter. Okay. Apparently that's where the song lyrics <laughs> came from. Mm-hmm. Radio ever um, says they wouldn't play it at their gigs because they didn't like it. Da, 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 da. But one day he said that one day he finally admitted part of the reason he didn't want to play it is because that's where they got it from. So it was just like graffiti in a toilet. Mm-hmm. Some and, of those lyrics. Yeah. The debut single was written on a toilet of the Studio Guild Studio Guild nightclub, the Lemming Grove. So yeah, a, a student union, students guild, student union bar or something like that. 
I, I mean, that's a that is totally a UK thing. I the first time I heard that, I was like, "What are you talking about?" The student, do you? <laughs> well, the student union, you see. So, if he, I, I never went to further education, I left school when I was eighteen. I just did secondary school and left. I didn't get involved mm-hmm. in further education. But if if you go to like university, people will join the students' union because there there are events and there's various things that you can do if you're in the students' union and things like that. But a lot of people will join the students' union because you get to use the students' union's bar. Because, like, in England, the, the drinking age is 18. So you would typically join university when you're 18. You join the student union, you can go to the student union bar, which means they sell booze at cost. So mm. it's incredibly cheaper than anywhere else. So if you're a poor poor struggling student you can go out and socialize with your friends and you can drink booze at incredibly discounted prices oh i mean it i see how it's a lucrative like i see why people would want to do it i get the the thrill of it it's just something we don't do here no because the drinking age being 21 you know you would maybe go to um to college or further education or whatever potentially at the age of 18. 18. And then for three years, officially, you couldn't go out and drink in bars. But in England, like you hit 18, it's like, boom, game on. Well, and that's because, so that's why, like when I was in college, mom and dad, so close your ears, we just went to people's houses and drank. No, we were in bars. Abs- yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And I'm sure somebody who looked a bit older or had a fake ID went to the ABC store <laughs> and got, got that stuff. But yeah, in England, it's very common that you would you would go to the student union bar. Oh, there you go. I Googled it. I gave it a Google. I'm on air, everybody. The Living Grove and whatever Tim said still exists. Exeter. Exeter. Um, It is still there. It's located near the University of Exeter. So I think Tim was correct on the student grove thing being part of that, whatever we were talking about. But apparently part of the reason he does not want to play it anymore is because they got the lyrics off of a toilet seat. Well, th- th- there we are. We just, despite despite them just being too too cool for school, because oh, we're not going to play mm-hmm. creep anymore because we've moved on and we're more mature. And it's like, no, it's your big hit. Play it for goodness' sake. Yeah, and they do that. You kind of thought that that's why, but I guess eventually after people kind of bringing it up, because well, also just so you know, that song only came from what you know what I mean to downplay it, but that's a very talented person who wrote that on a toilet seat because they're pretty good song lyrics. Well, 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 there we are. It was a, <laughs> it, it was, it was a lavatory poet that wrote that. That would be another one. Given they were probably so intoxicated, they don't remember writing on a toilet seat. Could you imagine if you wrote those lyrics on a toilet seat and then a year later <laughs> <laughs> on the radio? And you don't want to tell anybody. No one's going to believe you. <laughs> yeah, no, they're going to think you're like, yeah, of course, Bob. That never happened. And you're like, no, but for real. <laughs> I remember that night we were doing the tequila shot. <laughs> oh, I just like that would like you'd be, and you'd be like, you know what happened? You'd be in the car, you'd be driving, you'd hear it, you'd be like, hold up. And then you'd lean it closer and be like, hmm, that sounds really familiar. And then it'd start <laughs> weighing on your mind till you remember. <laughs> that would be funny though. If that person's out there and they listen to the note ABC <laughs> we'd be happy to have you on. Um all right. That just makes me laugh, though. I can't imagine. And eh, let's pick another song. How much more time do we have, Tim? We probably We've got, got probably time for a couple more. Perfect. All right. Let's go with, well, Tim has already told us this one, but I'll just say it. Summer of 69 is exactly what you think it was about. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and Brian Adams did buy his first guitar in the Canadian Five and Dime. Um, he was 10 in 1969. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. All right. So the next one is we'll go with Googie Goo Goo. That's not what we're going with. <laughs> Goo Goo Dolls slide. So that song sounds very, you know, pop rock, melancholy, blah, blah, blah. Apparently it's actually about a girl they heard about who had gotten pregnant, a teenager. Uh, but she was debating whether she wanted to keep it or not. And he was watching the news one night and somehow that came up. I don't know. I don't know if something happened to the girl. She did something she wasn't supposed to. I don't know why she was on the news, but that is what the song is about. Oh, wow. I, I, I didn't know that. Well, and I've never really played, paid attention to the lyrics of that song, I don't think. No, see, I mean, some some people are lyric people, as we've covered before. I mean, some some lyrics will catch my attention, and you know, like some of the songs we spoke of this evening, I can spill the lyrics straight off. Um, yeah. But the, the deep and meaningful lyrics of a lot of songs are not something that I super get into. Some people, that's their thing. That's typically mine, so that's why it's weird that I don't. But I will say, I'm not a big Goo Goo Dolls person. No, I'm casual you know i'm not a big fan i don't own any of their music physically or anything like that mm -mm. but but i as we've said before <laughs> i tend to focus more on the instrumentation of the song rather than the lyrics though some lyrics do stick some lyrics do connect but the reason that that's so interesting to me is that i think that's part of the reason why i can't write a song tim is i'm very literal whereas mm -hmm. they can take like a concept like that and make it palatable for the world to listen to on repeat for the next 20 years Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's weird to me. That concept is completely lost. Yeah, you see that that's why that's why I'm not a lyric writer. <laughs> I'm a uh, I'm a I'm a jam along a guitar player who can write half decent guitar parts to songs that people have written. I am apparently neither of those, so I don't know what you call me. I just call me Joy. <laughs> <laughs> and Joy, I wouldn't have it any other way, let me tell you. But one day, everyone, I'm going to mark my words. I'm going to write a song. <laughs> and you guys are going to be like, see, we told you you had it. I don't know. It just is one of those things that I just don't, I can't conceptualize. I mean, I know what a bridge is. I know what a chorus is. I know my core. You know, I, I know what it is mechanically to write a song. I know what a verse is, a chorus, all that. But to put it on paper just blows my mind. So for those of you out there that can do that, I think that's awesome. All right. So this is what I think Tim has talked a little bit about on here. But since it's in front of me, I will bring it up. It is I Am the Walrus, written by John Lennon. Yeah. My understanding of I Am the Walrus, and I could be wrong about this, is I think mm -hmm. there was some professor or university college course or something like that that was deeply going into the lyrics of the Beatles. And they were trying to pull out, especially with John Lennon songs, what he was trying to say, the metaphors he was using. You know, is this about world peace? Is this about this? Is this about that? And he heard about it. So he wrote I Am the Walrus, which is essentially nonsense. So, yes, you are correct. Um, that's the kind of overture. I'll go a little bit more in detail. So basically, John Lennon found out that some local universities, colleges, whatever you want to call them, offered classes dedicating to disconcerning the meetings behind the Beatles lyrics. Um, so he decided to pen I Am the Walrus, Walrus, a song that kind of defies your ability to interpret it. And so what he did was in an interview in 1980 with Playboy, Lennon explained that the first two lines of the song were jotted down on two separate acid trips. 
Okay. <laughs> but even then, the inclusion of the nonsensical phrases such as yellow matter custard, um, the fishwife, Lenin was unsuccessful in his mission. Today, a quick Google search reveals an impressive array of fan interpretations and conspiracy theories. So even though he put those weird things in there, people are still trying to dissect it, figure it out. And he said they were just doing acid. <laughs> I also know that, in fact, I was listening to Glass Onion the other day from the White Album, and yeah. there's, a, there's a line in that that says, the walrus was Paul. I don't know if you've ever heard that line. No. <laughs> That's, I, don't, I need to listen to that, though. That makes me laugh. Oh, poor walrus. I wonder if he ever got any money. I don't know, but it was Paul. <laughs> according, according to Glass Onion, it was Paul. Well, maybe it's not a real walrus. Maybe it was like a friend named Walrus. We'll never know. It, right. it, it could be, but there was, like you said, there was a lot of drugs involved, so it doesn't really make any sense. <laughs> I love how, like, I'm trying to dissect that when we literally just read a fact about don't dissect it. None <laughs> of it makes any sense. <laughs> I just love how you just don't blood. He's like, no, I wrote the first two um, lyrics while I was on acid. That's it. That's the story. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, all right. Next song. So this one is, we'll go with Marvin Gaye. Um, I met a little girl, which this sounds a little controversial, but anyway. So basically, Marvin Gaye um, had a 12 year marriage with Anna Gordy. Um, Gay found himself entangled in a straight, um, a strong, um, uh, debt from all his album deals and different things. He was in a lot of debt. I don't know mm -hmm. why that was so hard for me to say, everybody. Um, and so he was trying to get out of that, entangled in it. Um, when Gabe was unable to pay the million-dollar lawsuit, um, Gordy demanded his lawyer, part of the reason he's in debt because he's going mm -hmm. through a divorce, um, his lawyer struck up an unconventional deal. Gordy would receive $305,000 advance made out by Motown for Gay's next album, plus $295,000. Um, it was supposed to return in profits. The task, um, they tasked the project for a little bit. Um, hold on, let me restate this. The project was then offered for a little bit more than what they originally said. She declined it. They went back and forth. Um, and finally, he came up with an album titled Here, My Dear, to air his grievances about his ex-wife. I don't know why that was so hard for me to say, guys. I lost my track of thought there. Basically, it's what Tim was saying that guy did earlier. So he made the whole album. And in I Met a Girl, Gay describes the first um, love of his life, Gordy, and the inevitable heartbreak that followed. So basically, he sold the rights to the record and all the profits it made to pay off his debt for some bad record deals he had and for his divorce. Yeah. And <laughs> all the songs are about his wife that he was paying. <laughs> Don't know why that was so hard for me to use words, but I, that's the first time, though, this episode, words were hard, Tim, for me, which usually happens every episode. But anyway, I would have never known that. Yeah, as I said, it's, it's almost like the uh, the more famous version of the uh, my, my uh, physics teacher, Jeff Taylor's uh, song <laughs> that he wrote, Tinnies, in, in a sort of way. It kind of, I mean, it's the passive aggressiveness of it. Like, I mean, but I have to be honest, Tim, if I knew all the money I make it off this album and I'm entangled in all this debt, I've got bad record deals out there. I got to pay a door. I would probably do the same. At least put those thoughts and those feelings to pin. You know what I mean? Exactly. Well, it's like, it's like the Queen song, Death on Two Legs, which is, it doesn't actually say it, but it's about <laughs> their first managers who ripped them off. 
Oh. And the, the, the whole song is just about the original Trident uh, uh, management team that they had. Huh. I didn't know that. That's interesting. I mean, I knew they had the bad management team and the whole thing, but I didn't know the song was about it. Yeah, it's the very first song on Night of the Opera, Death on Two Legs. And it, and it goes on about a uh, somebody who is a blood-sucking leech and the, um, all this kind of stuff. And it's, it's about their manager. And in fact, in the end, he sued them for like defamation of character and uh, they actually settled out of court because they just wanted it to go away. But uh, Freddie Mercury really wanted to make a statement about that. And it's, it's forever out there on a night of the opera. I mean, that's way one, one way to do it. All right, everybody. So this one is, uh, I've heard this story. I've heard a little bit about this story, but I've never heard this specific thing. So this is Derek and the Dominoes' Layla. Mm-hmm. So... When Eric Clapton wrote the lyrics for his Der- for Derek and the Dominoes, Layla, he was actually directing the words towards George Harrison's wife. Yes. Um, yeah. At the time, Clapton was trying to win over Patty Harrison and get her um, to leave her husband from the Beatles. Yeah. Patty Boyd, as, which is her maiden name. Yes. Yeah. And also Wonderful Tonight is about Patty Boyd as well. So in particular, the lyric... What you'll do when things get lonely was meant as a question for Mrs. Harris because she's being left alone because her husband's a beetle. Yeah, and, in, and I think I think in the end, Patty Boyd left George Harrison for Eric Clapton for a period of time. She did because I read that book that um, the one I talk about the the lady who worked at Apple Records, and she talks a lot about all this stuff, and that's the reason I've heard this. She did. I don't know if they ended up together for a long time, but she definitely left and went and hung out with the other one for a while. Yeah, and um, Patty Boyd met George Harrison on the set of Hard Day's Night. You know, when they were on the train, you know, mm-hmm. it's full of screaming girls. They they were all actresses brought in for Hard um, Day's Night, and Patty Boyd was was part of the people brought in on the train, and that's where she met George Harrison. Huh. Well, I mean, that's. I mean, people meet at work all the time. <laughs> exactly, but once again, saying that Eric Clapton isn't necessarily the best person in the world. There you go. <laughs> I was thinking it too. So apparently, though, to get literal, that was the topic behind the song. But it says he wrote the song after reading a 12th century story called The Story of Layla and Manu. I don't know if I'm saying that right, which is about a father who marries off his daughter to a man who wasn't her true love. See what he did there? See how he wove, wove those little layers? Exactly. And it and is slimy Eric Clapton way. <laughs> you can tell me and Tim have very strong feelings. I think we've talked about this one, but since we're we're on a Beatles kick, we'll stay with him because we both love the Beatles. It's the Beatles. Hey, Jude. Um, so Paul McCartney wrote, hey, Jude, after learning of his bandmate, John Lennon, getting a divorce from wife Cynthia. He visited Cynthia and was thinking about the son, couple's son, Julian, when he wrote the first line of the song. Yeah, it was originally called Hey Jules, not Hey Jude. Yeah. Um, and then he thought that, yeah, it says it was like, Hey Jules. Then I just thought a better name would be Jude, which it does rhyme and work more with the music. But it's such a sweet song because he's like, I thought to myself, come on, Julian, you're a man. Your parents are getting divorced. I know you're not happy, but you'll be okay. And so he wanted that hopeful message to come through. And it's such a sweet song to begin with. When you hear that, it all makes so sense. And I don't know if this is, I see it this way and I find it very interesting. So it's very 
It's a very simple song. It's very pleasant to the ear. I imagine it resonates with children very well. And the reason I say that is I've seen kids singing it. It's very easy for them to digest. And so it makes sense that it was written for a kid. Yeah, and it also has that na 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 na. It's 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 a live music anthem. I've played that in the guilty party, and people absolutely love it. And you bring the band down, and you get the audience to sing it. It's a it's a whole audience participation masterpiece. Well, and that makes sense. And but also, I could see kids liking to do that too. Yeah. So it goes both ways. But what a sweet little thing! I think Tim has talked a little bit about it before. Um, but since we were talking about the Beatles, I want to bring it up. Now, this song is something that I've heard um, quite a few times. I've heard what the song is about, and I don't know if Tim has. It is the Kinks Lola. Yeah, I think we think we have spoken about it before. Lola is is what what would have been referred to as at the time as a transvestite, somebody who's a member mm-hmm. of the LGBTQ community. Yes. So basically, he went to a club one night and began dancing with someone he thought was a woman. Turns out they were um, someone who was trans. He did not know that. He said it wasn't their fault. They didn't know, but he told the person this wasn't for me and left. And then he went home and wrote the song. I've heard this said, and I don't know for sure the low in the law is kind of a play on like masculine and feminine and like Spanish and um, French. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. they do that. That's what I've heard. That's where that comes from. But I have never actually heard it confirmed from the artist. So that might just be a theory. Hmm. I don't know. I I do know this is the one where... The UK version says cherry cola, and then the US version says Coca-Cola. I wonder why. Because the BBC wouldn't play it because it had advertising in it. <laughs> of course. Those old <laughs> men who cancel all the songs. <laughs> I should have predicted it. All right. Well, there you go, everybody. All right. Let's do another one. This one is one I've kind of heard different versions of the story i think my mom's told me i might have heard it on vh1 back in the day but here's like the actual account it's billy jean michael jackson yeah my understanding of billy jean is this was his response to to uh, women who would write him letters claiming that he was the father of their children when he was out when he was out touring with the jacksons uh you know, he he would have uh, had some um, liaisons with ladies on the road, and then they would write to him and claim that he was the father of their children. So it is somewhat that is that's kind of what I had heard. But this goes into more specifics. So Jackson had been receiving letters from one woman that claimed he was the father of her child. The letter was so the letter writer was so re- relentless, constantly proclaiming her love for Jackson while trying to convince her him to start a life with her. Um, Jackson was so disturbed by the letters that he was having nightmares about them. One day, Jackson received a package from the same woman, which included a letter, a photo, and a gun. She wanted him to kill himself and said that she'd kill herself and the baby so they could all be together in another life. The incident inspired Jackson to work through the horror he felt and write a song to address the woman um, indirectly. Hmm. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that, that, that goes into far more detail than the uh, my my cursory knowledge of Billie Jean. See, I my mother, I think, had told me, you know, there was a girl and the baby and that kind of thing. But I had never known it was one specific woman and I didn't know about the package. Yeah, I, I, I had not heard of that before. That would be terrifying, though, because people do weird stuff. I mean, think about the guy who tried to kill Ronald Reagan for what's her what's his face's love, John. Jane Fonda? Jo- Jodie Foster. He, he, apparently, he apparently was trying to impress Jodie Foster, mm-hmm. apparently. 
I mean, I don't. I don't think he did it. <laughs> I don't think it impressed her. It's just a theory. Too. No, I think that gentleman just needed help is what, what needed to happen. Yes. But anyway, but I was getting at those things like that. People do weird stuff. So that would be traumatic. But I guess a great, if something has to come out of it, one of his most beloved songs of all time is a good thing to come out of it. Sure. And I mean, the, the other thing with like Thriller is that he didn't write a lot of those songs. Tom, Tom mm-hmm. Ted Templeman wrote the bulk of those songs. So to have to have one of those songs actually written by Michael Jackson and have that kind of story behind it oh, makes that's it a good point. Yeah, it makes it even more special. Look at you, Tim, pointing out all the the things I don't think. Of. <laughs> well, he didn't write a lot of his music. I mean, he gets some songwriting credits on songs, but I feel like you, if you contribute one word, they have to give you credit. Well, so. the other thing you get with some artists is you get what's known as a vanity songwriting credit. So you may not have written any of the music, but part of your deal with a songwriter is that you will put your your name on it to get a percentage. Okay, that makes sense, though. I guess, yeah, I didn't think about that. Well, that makes sense why there's 47 people on every album nowadays. But anyway, we've went down that road. We, Joy, have covered that entirely. I have very strong feelings about it. It's very weird to me, okay? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So this one is The Fray, How to Save a Life. Are you familiar with that song, Tim? No, I'm not familiar with that one. I hate this song. (laughs) 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 Let me start by saying that. So this song came out. I'm going to look up what year. And I'll explain why I hate this song. So it came out in March of 2006. I would say I don't know one other song from this band. Um, They were alternative rock. They kind of had that alternative rock thing that I don't care for in the sense that it's I don't know. It's it's like the hinders of the world, the nickelbacks of the world, that sound. They were mm-hmm. kind of marketing on that meets pop. It actually was charting at the exact time Santana, no, let me reset this. It was not charting at the exact time, but it is the seventh long charted single after Santana Smooth. And first of all, they should never be in the same sentence as Santana. So I have mixed feelings about that. <laughs> um, it has been certified platinum three times. And the song is the whiniest song <laughs> I have ever heard in its entirety. And it was everywhere in America. When I say you couldn't go anywhere without hearing about this, how to save a life. And he says like how to save a life at least 20 times in the song. Now, did you have it on a hit clip? I didn't. Um, I would have probably burnt it if I did or like <laughs> smashed it. And I feel bad now that I've read what the song's about because the song, obviously, it's about how to save a life. You would think somebody trying to kill themselves, suicide, something, right? Trigger mm-hmm. warning out there. But this is what it is. It was written after singer and songwriter Isaac Slade worked at a camp for troubled kids. One of the kids I was paired up with was a musician. Here I was, uh, um, and he was just 17 and had all these problems. And I'm just, a, you know, this guy from suburbia protected. Nothing bad's really happened to me. And no one could write a manual on how to save him, including myself. Um, so that's where it comes from. The singer receives a lot of heartbreaking responses after the song became a hit, one of which was the story of a young man who died in a car accident um, and just different things like that because it's talking about how to save a life. So he met this kid at a troubled camp. He was a musician. He, he was, you know, it spoke to him that he was a musician and he was like, I'm just this average dude. I don't know how to save a life. So that's why the song's How to Save a Life. Well, there we are. That, that annoying song that you hate has a very deep and meaningful lyric to it. 
So doesn't mean I like this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna say it. It's just not my favorite. All right. Let's see. Why don't Why don't you do one more, Joy, and then we will wrap this episode up. That's what I was thinking. I think we're just about there. And now I have all of these songs stuck in my head. So we'll end it on one that we... Now we'll end it with Ticket to Ride, written by John Lennon and Paul McCartney. You've heard mm-hmm. of them, yes? <laughs> is, is that about that Liverpool band? Or, you know, they're, they're kind yeah. of underground. They're not, not many people know who with they are. With their haircuts and their rock and roll tunes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they're wearing suits, so, you know, they kind of speak to the people. Anyway. <laughs> so Lennon and McCartney's recollections of the songwriting process differ. That might have been the acid. Um, while Lennon maintained that McCartney's contribution was merely offering advice as to how Ringo could play the drums, McCartney claims the two rode together during a three-hour session. Um, their competing recollections also are reflected in complete, conflicting stories regarding the genesis of the song, title, chorus, everything. Don Short, a British journalist who traveled with the Beatles on tour, claims that it arose out of one of the band's time spit in the red light district of Hamburg, Germany. The working girls there carried a government-issued card that indicated a clean bill of health, which I've heard that is a thing. John told me he coined the phrase, a ticket to ride to describe Uh those cards. McCartney explained later, though, is a little bit more innocent. He claimed the title came from a play on words that Ride referred to the town of Ride on the Isle of Wight, right? Yeah, I've always thought it was Ride on the Isle of Wight. The Isle of Wight being an island on the south of England, and I've been to Ride. It's like a little seaside town on the Isle of Wight. So there you go. There's two different accounts of the same story. And then when I'm sick, when I'm when in when I'm 64, we we could get a cottage on the Isle of Wight <laughs> if it's not too dear. So I mean, the Isle of Wight thing is a is a Beatles reference. I mean, yeah, that makes sense if they've referenced another that that's where your mind would go. But who knows? It could have been a combination of both. Maybe they were both writing the song, and one person was thinking about that, and the other person was thinking about that. Oh, I mean, it could be. But, could be could, could could go either way. That's what you get. That's that's a that's a true songwriting partnership for you. I love that. It says Lennon maintains that McCartney's only contribution was offering advice to Ringo on how to play the drums. <laughs> well, Ticket to Ride has a very unique drum pattern, and a lot of people who try and cover that song don't mm-hmm. get it right because it's very unorthodox the way that it's played. And I've seen videos on YouTube of Ringo showing people how to play Ticket to Ride because it is a very unorthodox pattern. And, you know, people, you know, contemporarily have said, oh, Ringo wasn't a great drummer. And there's a whole joke that, oh, Ringo wasn't even the greatest drummer in the Beatles. But I don't know. Ringo is he, he he's a powerhouse. I mean, he wrote some very inventive drum parts in the Beatles and the Beatles wouldn't sound like the Beatles without Ringo. Yeah, I agree with you. I really do. I think that it's just, it's, I think part of it is because he was never an eccentric drummer. Do you know what I mean, Tim? So I don't know that he ever really showed what his real skills were. And so people didn't really know what to think of him. It's also just fun to make fun of the drummer. It seems to be a, just like making fun of the bass player, you know? That's true. But no, nobody's making fun of John Bonham or Phil Collins or, you know. True that. That kind of stuff. I don't know. He he was he was the butt of many jokes for many years, but I mean, very very unfair. Ringo, we love you. Peace and love. 
that's maybe it's just because he's so nice too. people just take advantage of him being so nice and kind all right i want to leave it with one quote i'm not going to go into the song because i don't have a lot of time but you know we all know the story about jolie the bank the girl we've all heard that from dolly i just i had never heard this one i say he said what i was saying you're spending a lot of time at that bank i don't believe we got that kind of money <laughs> I thought that was a hilarious quote. I don't think we got that kind of money. <laughs> amazing. That's amazing. I had to leave it on Dolly. 90% of this episode was just Beatles songs, but that's okay. There we are. Fantastic. <laughs> Do you have anything for the people, Tim? Just be extra kind. All right. Bye. See you later. Bye bye. To find the Alpha, now that's it, to